chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read the first 29 verses of the chapter. Romans 8 is, in a sense, the central chapter in Romans, and there are two themes in this chapter that really come together in the text for the sermon. So as we're reading through this chapter, pay attention to these two themes. Probably no chapter in the Bible mentions the Holy Spirit as often as this one. That's one of the themes in this chapter. But the other theme is family, and that we are of the family of God. And that's the wonder, how the wonder of our salvation is described here in this chapter. So look for those two things as we read. We're not going to read the whole chapter, just the first 29 verses. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, or the creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature, or again the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, or namely, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. Why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we'll read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. The text is verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. It's Pentecost Sunday today. We rejoice in the work of God in the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the church. And I want to begin tonight by telling you why I've chosen to preach on these verses. The reason is that two weeks from now on Sunday evening, I'll be preaching at Grace uh, our Grace Congregation, for a baptism service in which I'll baptize my newest niece, Emma, who is now seven years old. I say my newest niece, and she's seven years old, and boys and girls, you're wondering, why did it take so long for her to be baptized? And the answer is adoption. It's a beautiful story. My brother and his wife have had Emma since she was two years old. She comes from a sad and broken situation. Her adoption was just finalized in the last few months. And it's a beautiful story, not just from the earthly point of view of her being taken from a bad situation and put into a loving, caring, Christian home, but it's a beautiful story of what God has done from a spiritual point of view, his plan, his care, his love for her as a young child, bringing her into a covenant home. That's the beautiful story of adoption. And some of you are very familiar with it. Adults, strangers, you've taken in children into your family, bestowed on them family love, given them a place of safety and provision, and care, and instruction, and nurture, and open your hearts with an immense love. And some of you, as children, know this story from that perspective, adopted, brought into loving homes, and, and you don't know life any other way. You can't imagine it any other way. But you do know that if it weren't for the story of your loving parents and your adoption, you could be in a very different place. Well, the story of adoption in the Bible is the story of your salvation and of my salvation as believers. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ belongs to the family of God. John 1 and verse 12, we've been adopted into the family of God. This is a biblical description, a God-created illustration of what it means to be saved. It's somewhat overlooked and neglected. We focus on justification, the legal aspect of our salvation, which teaches that God is, is just and righteous, and it brings us to the cross and the satisfaction for sin there, or we focus on sanctification, which teaches us that, that God is holy and that by the power of His Holy Spirit, He makes us holy, He sanctifies us. But salvation is not just legal justification, it's not just a calling sanctification, but salvation is a relationship. We've been loved by God. The tender love a father has 
for his children. Such love the Lord has bestowed on us. We've been received, embraced by a loving Father. We who were orphans and strangers received into his family and given every privilege of his natural son. And the beauty of the text that's before us this evening is that God wants us to know that. He wants us to know that we're his children. He wants us to know that he loves us with a family love. And he wants us to express our love as children to him. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Those two great themes in the chapter, the spirit and family, come together in the verses that we consider this evening. We have not received the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. And by that spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We express our love to the God who has loved us and brought himself, brought us into his own family. And the Spirit is given so that we may have a witness from God that we are the children of God. And we have all the privileges then, heirs of God with Christ. After I prepared this sermon, I was reading last night one of the bulletins from one of our sister congregations, and it had this little summary of these verses, and it's beautiful, so I'm going to read it. The spirit of adoption is the same as the spirit of God. There are two essential features which identify him as such. The first is that he imparts the nature of the father to all the children of the family. In this, there is a wide difference between a human and a divine adoption. Man can only confer his name and his inheritance upon the child he adopts, but in the adoption of God, to the name and inheritance of God is added the divine nature imparted in regeneration, so that, in the words of our Lord, we become manifestly the children of our Father which is in heaven. The second feature of the spirit of adoption is, having begotten the nature of the father, he then breathes the spirit of the child into the heart. He inspires a filial love, that is a childlike love. The love which glows in the believer's heart is the affection of a child to its parent. It is not a servile bondage, but a filial and free spirit, so sweet and holy an emotion. How tender and confiding, how clinging and childlike it is. Such ought to be our love to God. He is our Father, and we are His children. Let's consider these verses under the theme, the spirit of adoption. Notice with me first the marvelous story of our adoption. And then notice second, the Spirit's witness to our adoption. And then third, the experience, the believer's experience of that adoption. Several weeks ago, when I preached about witnessing, I said that every one of us has a story to tell of our salvation. This morning, we were confronted with that again in the words of Mark 5, verse 19. Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And perhaps you've wondered, what is the story of my salvation. And here it is. Adoption. That's the story of your salvation. And I want to encourage you to, to share your faith with that story. Your witness is not just that you were born and raised in a Christian home, nurtured and instructed, instructed in the Christian faith, and so you've adopted the faith of your fathers. Your witness is not just the setting before others, the arguments for the Christian faith or biblical arguments for your doctrinal positions. No, your witness is that you have been delivered from the family of Satan 
that you have been born again into the family of God, that you have been found and loved and changed and cared for. And now you have something to tell. How great things the Lord has done for me and has had compassion on me. 1 John 3 puts it this way. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. What manner of love. Whoever heard of such a love that I should be called child of God. In the bulk of the sermon tonight, I want to break down the reality of adoption and draw the parallels from that earthly picture to the spiritual reality, which is the story of my salvation. And so I have seven parallels. The first is this, that adoption is planned. Adoption is a decision. In this way, adoption is is different than having a child naturally. Yes, there's planning that goes with having a child naturally. But you don't really become parents by decision. Usually when a woman becomes pregnant, there's an element of surprise and There are all kinds of surprises along the way, the gender, the personality, the looks, and and you start making your plans after the surprise comes. We were just struck with this last night as we found out, Liz and I did, that we're going to be grandparents. What a surprise. But my brother and his wife, there was no surprise, there was a lot of planning for their daughter to become their child over many years. And so when parents adopt a child, it's usually done with thought, preparation, prayer. You're not in a receiving process, but you're in a decision-making process. And you have to rearrange your life and coordinate your resources to adopt a child. And our adoption into the family of God is like that. God doesn't simply receive us as his children, as some sort of gift, but he decides to make us his children. That decision is the eternal plan of God in predestination to make us his sons and his daughters. And and then the, the working out of that plan in all of history, God, as it were, organizing all of the resources of history to bring us into his family. Everything serves salvation. Isn't that the truth here in Romans 8, verse 28? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And then the next verse, whom he did foreknow, that is, he loved them eternally. He did predestinate, and he predestinated them what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God always had this in view in his eternal decree. He planned to bring us into his family. And that involves the entire universe and all the resources of this world and all of history and the unfolding of all that to to bring us into his family so that we might be his sons and his daughters. That's the truth, not only here in Romans chapter 8, but in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So adoption is planned. Second, adoption is costly. And anyone familiar with having children understands this, but especially adoption is costly. Someone recently told me that adoption was going to cost them thirty to fifty thousand dollars, which would require 
increasing the mortgage on their home. And those costs are much more than financial. That's part of the decision-making process, isn't it? Counting the cost, as it were, the time, the stresses, the commitment. And when you become a parent, you become a parent for life. And the griefs or the joys of parenthood remain. And that's the, the beauty of adoption, isn't it? That, that the, in this decision-making process, these people embrace the cost out of love and, and find their joy in the sacrifice. And you see, God has made a sacrifice, a great sacrifice, to adopt us into His family. And now think of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God, and you know what it says, sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He paid a price. He spared not His own Son, Romans 8 tells us, but gave Him up for us. That's an infinitely greater price than, than any parent will pay, will pay in adopting a child into their family and in raising children. So first, adoption is planned. Second, adoption is costly. And then third, adoption is deliverance. Adoption is deliverance. You see that in the biblical practice, especially in the Roman practice, which, which Paul would have had in mind as he wrote these words. It's interesting that in the Old Testament there are very few examples of adoption, only about three. But in the New Testament this becomes a very common uh, idea in, in, in the Scriptures. And, and that really fits with the idea of God being our Father and Jesus for Jesus' sake, us becoming his sons. And again, that's something that's revealed in its fullness in the New Testament. The Roman practice was this, that a wealthy person would pick out from among his servants or slaves one whom he especially trusted. And sometimes he would disown his own child in order to adopt this other child as his heir. So this one would be turned from one who was owned to being the owner, delivered from slavery. And there are definitely parallels to what happens in adoption today. Many adopted children are saved from abortion. Many come from orphanages where they subsist on a bare minimum. Others are saved from bad situations in homes or even from the street. And from a spiritual point of view, our adoption is like that, and even more so. God doesn't find us, as it were, wrapped in a bundle and abandoned on a front step, but He finds us as rebels with evil hearts under Satan's power, and Satan, whose we are by nature, is fighting for our custody, and, and God delivers us from that. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Israel's deliverance from Egypt. God delivered His Son from the bondage of Egypt. And Romans 9 verse 4 calls that adoption. Israel was adopted. And so we are in adoption delivered from the clutches and the ownership of Satan, being children of wrath and children of darkness and brought into what the Scripture calls the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Adoption is deliverance. Then fourth, adoption is legal. It involves the, the change of the legal status of the child. Sometimes those legal battles are long and hard. You, you can't just find a random child on the street and claim it as yours. No, you must have legal rights as a parent. And in God's adopting of us, the legal realities that had to be dealt with and worked through are that Satan and sin had a claim to us, that there's law that must be obeyed, that there's righteousness that must be maintained, that there's justice 
that must be satisfied. And we understand, of course, the legal transaction that was necessary. That was the cross of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we who are sometimes far off are brought nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you see the why theologians would say that adoption is closely tied to our justification, the legal aspect. Redemption, a very big idea in Scripture, and it's redemption from, from slavery and bondage with a price. And that's what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. But there is also in adoption a relational aspect. And here you should think, as we, as we think of the figure, adoptions, as we're familiar with them, of an international adoption. And the legal and the relational are very clearly distinguished in an international adoption. All the legal things are cleared up first, and then the parents go to the orphanage, and they take the child, and they're strangers to one another. There isn't a relational aspect yet. They have to get to know one another. A trust has to be built, and adoptive parents will surround that child with love and care, and the child will grow in filial, childlike love towards the parents. There's a relational aspect. And that's on the foreground here in Romans 8 with regard to our adoption. It's not just legal, but rich. We're brought into the family of God. He's our tender, loving Father, Psalm 103. And the natural Son of God, Jesus, becomes our older brother. And He spends all His efforts affirming to us our place in the family and showing us not only the Father's love, but His love. So that we're richly brought into this relationship. That's the point here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. You have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus says, I, I call you no longer friends, but uh, I call you no longer servants, but friends. And that's the same, the same distinction here, not the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. He's talking about our subjective experience in relation to God. We're not motivated in our obedience to God and in our Life as Christians by fear and bondage, but by freedom and familiarity with God, by love and gratitude. God doesn't just legally make us His children, leave us with no feelings of acceptance and love, but He pours out His Spirit into our hearts and we experience being embraced into the family of God. Romans 5 puts it this way, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given unto us. Not the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. With this result, in verse 15, that we cry out, Abba, Father. Father is the legal term. Abba is the term of affection and endearment. And when a child's adopted and calls the parents, Dad, Mom, with affection, they don't run to find the adoption papers to make sure it's legal first. But they live in the rich experience of that relationship. And so we, with God, can come with confidence with this childlike love. Relationship. And so adoption is planned, costly, it's deliverance, it's legal, it's relational. And then in the sixth place, it's transforming. There's something powerful about it. It does something to the child. 
We could put it this way, that as children we are shaped by the experiences and the environment in which we grow. Relationships are powerful. Community, the community of a home, has an impact on the child. And again, in adoption, a child who grows up in a healthy home, though the child may bear no resemblance to the, to the parents, but look very much like its natural parents, it will learn the habits, the ways, and the manners of the adoptive parents. And if that's a Christian environment, by God's grace, they'll learn to love the Lord and to love His Word. And forever they'll be grateful for that. And that's what Romans 8 verse 14 is talking about when it says that we are led by the Spirit of God. The sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. In verse 30, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. He remakes us by the Holy Spirit, by the work of His Holy Spirit, into the image of His Son. He does that in our regeneration, in our rebirth, so that we are born into the likeness of our Heavenly Father. But He continues that work in us in sanctification, so that we bear the image of the Heavenly. And if we have children, adopted or not, we bring them under the Word of God, and we bring to them the Word of God with the confidence that God will transform them and shape them to be a spiritual sons and daughters. So adoption is, is transforming. And here, as I read from that quote, the work of God in adopting us is infinitely more powerful and great. Then finally, in this Comparison or these parallels, we understand the great privileges that there are in adoption. We can think of those in two categories. There are the legal privileges and there are the relational privileges. Legally, an adopted child has rights to parental care, has rights to an inheritance at some point. Relationally, the adopted child has someone to turn to, someone whose love they can trust. Adoption ensures care and secures the future. And that parallels again to our spiritual adoption, our salvation. We are heirs. That's our great privilege. And we have access. That's our relationship to God in prayer. And verse 17 makes a point of that. We are children, and because we are children, we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have the same privileges as the natural son. Think about these privileges. Matthew chapter 5 in the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, They shall be called the children of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. He teaches us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. And so the Apostle Paul says, All things are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And he means that everything in heaven and in earth is, is a part of our inheritance. Is at our disposal, as it were. In the beginning, God said to Adam and Eve, I've given to you every tree and every beast, and, and through adoption, those things are restored to us. Adam and Eve forfeited that in the fall. And this includes not just everything, as it were, being ours, all things are yours, but even this events, all things work together for good. Everything that we have as God's children comes to us from his gracious hand. One commentator put it this way, the unbeliever may have many things, but he can enjoy none of them because they are not his, whereas the believer receives everything from God as his possession. Think about that. You can receive food, family, children, Health, riches from God, and you can use them with joy. 
But also you can receive from God as his children, sickness, grief, suffering. And that's verse 17 here. As children, we suffer with him. But all out of the Father's love. So there's that, again, legal aspect to our privileges, and that will include, and does include, the, the glories of heaven. The following verse says this about that, I reckon that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then it talks about the creation waiting to be delivered and the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And the adoption, not just of our souls in salvation, but of our bodies in the resurrection. All of that is ours. And then accompanying that is the, is the relational privilege, which is especially the privilege of prayer. And this chapter talks about that. God, Christ is our intercessor and the Holy Spirit also is our intercessor. And God gives to us that access to himself as his children. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven is a, is a name for every needy child to use in prayer. And God ensures that our prayers are heard as we come through Jesus Christ. We can come with that filial love, that childlike confidence. And where we fail in our prayers, where we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is busy too because the Spirit helps our infirmities. Verse 26, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he searches the hearts and knows the mind and makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So this is your story of adoption. Your story of salvation. Now throughout this, we've been talking about the Spirit's role. What is the Spirit's role? Really, in these verses, it's defined as two things. In verse 15, the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that Spirit of adoption is really those two things that were in the quotation I read. One, that we are given a new life, the life of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. So that we become children of God in a very real way, reflecting the nature of God himself. And then the other aspect of the, the spirit of adoption is this engendering of this childlike love and confidence in the heart and the soul of the believer so that he's confident to come to God. And he loves God with the affection and the desire that a child will have, the adoration that a child will have or his parent. But the other aspect of the Spirit's work is in verse 16. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the point here is that God wants his children to know that they are his children. And so he gives the Spirit as a witness with their spirit that they are his children. When Jesus leaves his disciples, this is the promise that he repeats over and over again. I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I will send the comforter, that is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who will come alongside of you. He, he will abide with you forever. And, and, and Jesus speaks, and the scriptures do, of many aspects of the Spirit's work, but the main work of the Spirit is assurance. And that's what's pointed to here in this text, isn't it? The Spirit itself, or Himself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He gives us a testimony that agrees with the testimony 
in our own spirit that we are the children of God. Now, how does he do that? Well, he does that from the outside and from within us. We sometimes speak of the effectual call, the effectual call of the gospel or the effectual call to salvation or sometimes just the calling. And what we mean is this, that the call of the gospel is accompanied by the work of the Spirit in the heart and that the two together are the call. We're called. Not just called in a, in a, in a sense like you might call out to someone and they do or they don't listen, but the effectual call means that there's an inner working of the grace and the power of God that makes the child of God respond. So in Acts chapter 16 it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she gave heed to the words that the Apostle Paul was preaching. Well, that's the idea here in the text. This witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit is, first of all, the witness that comes to us from the Word of God. The Spirit never works apart from the Word of God. Think about it. This is the Spirit's book. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture is sufficient. The Scripture is trustworthy. The Scripture is inerrant. And it's because God, the Holy Spirit Himself, gives us the Scriptures. And so in them is everything that we need to know for salvation, for faith, and for sanctification, for life. And the Spirit by the Word, speaks to us. I can put it this way. I've just explained the biblical truth of adoption from the Word of God. And if you're a child of God, you've heard that as the Spirit's testimony. The promises of Scripture are like daily bread to the soul of the child of God. Parents feed their children, and so the, the Spirit comes with the Word of God and, and feeds us continually from the Scriptures. There's a promise for every spiritual ailment that we have. It's like medicine to the soul is the Word of God. And in the Scriptures, the, the the, the Spirit gives us everything that we need to know about God, about salvation, about ourselves, and about the way to live as God's children. He, we might say, describes the sons and daughters of God. He describes the children of God. And then accompanying that external testimony of the Holy Spirit, there is the inner testimony of the Spirit. Not above Scripture, not apart from Scripture, but agreeing with Scripture so that as you hear, it resonates in your soul. And perhaps it's like this. A small inkling that I'm a child of God. And then the resounding description of what the child of God is in the Word and then the two together, increasing your confidence that indeed you are a child of God. There's a witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Can you quantify that witness? Well, the best way for us to answer that question is this, that the Word of God, which describes the child of God, the Word of God tonight, which describes the wonder of our salvation in terms of adoption, does not resonate in every soul. There are some to whom I can tell the wonder and the marvel of God as our Father, and it would mean nothing more to them than if there were a stranger in the street and I would go up to them and say, hey, I'm your dad. And they'd look at me and run. You're not my dad. And where the Spirit has not worked to give this testimony with our spirit, where he hasn't given faith, 
then we don't receive that testimony. It's true. And so, Romans chapter 1, as many as believed, uh, sorry, John chapter 1, as many believed on him, to them he gave the right or the privilege to be called the children of God through faith, which is a result of regeneration. We become the children of God. So tonight, does this mean something to you? Does this resonate in your soul? Do you have for God the affection, the adoration, the filial love of a child? Do you, do you have for God the, the praise and the desire to be like Him? Do you trust in Him as your Father and seek everything from His hand and know His goodness in His providential care in your life? Do you have the hope that can't be seen? which is eternal in the heavens, and know that you're an heir, joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of the Spirit with your spirit, that you are a child of God. The opposite, of course, is that you don't care, that you do the works of the devil, your father, that you, like Esau, despise the promises and the grace of God. The Spirit gives testimony by the Word in the hearts of the regenerate. That's me. God is my Father. I'm His child. That brings us to the final thing tonight, and that is the experience of our adoption. Or we could put it this way, what does it feel like to be a child of God? Our being a children of God is not based on our feelings, but certainly there is an experience for the children of God. What does it feel like to be a child of God? I suppose we could compare this to a home, every home has its own ways and practices and, and what we might call dynamic, right, in relationships. What does it feel like to belong to the family of God? What's the dynamic of God's family? Three things, two right here in the text. First, in verse 14. To be a child of God is to be led by the Spirit of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We sang earlier about being led by the Spirit in paths of uprightness. What's the experience here? The experience here is the the inner grace of God that works sanctification in my heart, my desires, and my life, so that I have a hatred for sin, that I put away sin, that I live in daily repentance, and that I want to be conformed to the image of God's Son. I want to live in holiness and in obedience. This is a mark that I'm a child of God. That's the point in 1 John chapter 3, and I referenced earlier the first verse, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Then it says this, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. There's something different that the world doesn't recognize, that the world doesn't understand. And then later in the chapter, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And again, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So here's the mark of being the child of God. Here's, we could say, what it feels like in our experience. The life of sanctification. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. But then along with that, is the life of suffering. 
That's verse 17. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Suffering with him. That's referring to the suffering of Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege as God's children to share in his suffering. To take up a cross and to follow him. Being a child of God does not mean that in this world everything will go swimmingly well for you. Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And there will be suffering. But also glory. If we suffer with him, we shall be glorified together. And that's the promise that the word of God always holds out before us as God's children in our suffering. Again, the Beatitudes, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed, and they even work for us that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So what does it feel like to be a child of God? It feels like suffering for the name of Christ. And it feels like a, a life of cross-bearing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But with the wonderful hope of glory. And that suffering, and here's the third experience, is a testimony of the Father's love. It's a testimony of the Father's love. That's the way our childlike relationship to God is described for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. And it means simply this. Not only that sometimes we have to be chastened by God in order to see our sin, but it means this, that in his goodness, God afflicts us. And that's why we can say in Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together for good. And later in the chapter, who shall separate us from the love of God? Is there anyone that condemn us? None. Christ died. He's risen. And that secured your sonship and mine as believers. So here's, again, the story of your salvation adopted. Amen. Father, we thank thee for the wonder of what our salvation is and for the beauty of this passage that thou art a God whose work is not only to legally secure our salvation, to deliver us from sin and Satan, but also to bring us into relationship, to, to give us to know thy tender love as our Father. Help us, Father, to live in that, and, and may this produce in us a childlike love for thee, so that we turn to thee, and we also cry out, Abba, Father. We pray these things through thy Son, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.